Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Julia LaRoche Show. Today's guest is Danielle DiMartino Booth. She is the CEO and Chief Strategist for Quill Intelligence, a research and analytics firm. Danielle was also one of Dallas Fed President Richard Fisher's closest advisors. She spent almost a decade at the Dallas Fed, where she was also known for her calls on the subprime housing crisis. In this conversation, we get Danielle's take on the economy, the biggest risk that we might not be aware of, the white collar recession that's taking place, why she's cheering for Jay Powell to succeed and why the Fed chair might actually be trying to kill the Fed put. We also got Danielle's advice for the younger generations and it might leave you feeling a bit more upbeat. I really enjoyed this conversation with Danielle and I think you will too. Danielle DiMartina Booth, CEO and Chief Strategist for Quill Intelligence. Welcome to the show. It's so great to have you on. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. It's awesome to have you. And for folks who don't know, you were also a uh, close advisor to former Fed, Dallas Fed President Richard F Fisher, uh, where you spent almost a decade at the Dallas Fed. You are you are also the author of the book Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America, which I finished last month. And I highly recommend for the folks out there watching and listening to go ahead and pick up a copy because it is an illuminating read, as I would put it. Um, so, Danielle, it is so great to have you. I think this is such an important time to have this conversation. And let's kind of just start with your big picture macro view, and then we can start to zoom in on some of the ideas you have. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I think uh, I, I think we're at a critical juncture, not just in the U.S. economy and in the U.S. financial markets, but globally. Uh, we, we forget that the global financial crisis uh, was not as enveloping, I would say, as the current episode is and is going to be. We always had China as a backstop for the global economy to come in and, and be the marginal buyer of you name the commodity as they were growing out their, their country and building their, their middle income, middle class. That's really not with us right now. And I think that that is going al alone to be a major factor in, in determining how long and drawn out the current downturn is going to be in the United States and in, in the rest of the world. So we are definitely, I think, in a global recession right now. That's the best way uh, to term it. It's interesting uh, that here in the United States, many have uh, continued to debate whether or not we're in recession or not. Uh, I, I go to a very easy barometer that anybody uh, who's watching can follow, a website called dailyjobcuts.com. So uh, this, is, uh, this is the beginning of November, and we already have more job cuts that have been announced uh, this far into November than we had in the months of October and September combined. So the, the dreaded layoff cycle that seems like it was not going to arrive is actually with us now. And it's, it's, it's emanating outside of the bounds of Silicon Valley, where I think a lot of people had hoped the layoff cycle would be contained. We're now seeing uh, beyond even mortgage, um, mortgage lenders and what have you, beyond that scope of layoffs, we are seeing a broadening out. In, uh, across all industries in, in the layoff cycle. And I think that's going to make it very real for people who had been hoping for a soft landing. Mm -hmm. um, let's, I do want to explore this a bit further, um, I, you know, kind of talking about the the layoffs. And you mentioned Silicon Valley and also that it's starting to spread outside of it. Um, let's just kind of explore that. Like, when, is there, I take it there's probably a lag here. What do you think? 
There's always a lag with layoff cycles, but now there's an unusually protracted lag uh, because of many of the vestiges, the legacy of the pandemic. Uh, we've lost quite a few people who used to be in, in the workforce uh, coming out of the global financial crisis. For example, one of the steadiest sources of increase to the labor force was workers that, who were 55 and older. We really don't have that same dynamic, even though quite a few who retired early uh, in, um, during the pandemic have flowed back into the workforce. And on top of that, you have some of the lowest income earners that may never come back into the workforce because the social safety net, as I like to call it, sources of support for the lowest income earners have grown appreciably since the pandemic hit, meaning uh, what we're looking at in the current layoff cycle is a much different construct than what we've seen in past recessions. In other words, in the, in the past, you would see layoffs begin with the lowest income earners, and we're not seeing that. We're seeing white collar, and, and, and in fact, the Financial Times coined the term just a few days ago, we're seeing a white collar recession. We're seeing layoffs start at the top of the income ladder, as well as what that comes with, lots of severance packages. So we're not seeing it manifest as quickly in the jobless claims data as we would otherwise, because so many people are getting what we call golden parachutes as they go out the door. That's really interesting. So it's a white collar recession. And you mentioned the severance packages. I had not thought of that, but you're right, because I, I know someone who got laid off and I think they got like three, four months of severance. Um, so you have to like account for like when that when that kind of factors in. Let me ask you this, though, like with a white collar wave of layoffs, um, what kind of implications could that have to the broader economy, too? Because I imagine these are folks who have like the mortgages, the cars. What do you think? When you think about what happened after the pandemic hit, that you had multiple generations because you actually had a lot of baby boomers who were thinking that they were going to move into city centers and that they were going to be hit and age closer to hospitals and be closer to their millennial children. They, they, they put those plans indefinitely on hold. They stayed in the suburbs and in the exurbs. At the same time, your typical urban dweller moved outside of the city, got a mortgage and all the maintenance that goes along with owning a home, bought a car for the first time. Now they've got all of these fixed payments, if you will. And a lot of companies have called workers back to the office. So you're right to point out that it is going to be uh, more there, there. We will see more of a real effect on the economy because some of the highest income earners who spend more than the lowest income earners, by definition, are going to be financially strapped because they do have financial obligations that they might not have had had the pandemic not hit and they and, and had they still been renters in urban city centers with no car payment. Yeah, that's a good point, too. Um, you mentioned, you know, uh, a lot of them being called back to the office. Um, there's also this Not a popular subject, by the way. Yeah, yeah. There's also this trend, and I want to get your reaction to it. I'm sure you've heard it. Uh, a lot of people talked about it for a couple months now. Quiet quitting. Um, my last guest, he said that quiet quitting is going to end in loud firing is how he kind of put it. What are your thoughts on this quiet quitting phenomenon? Yeah, I mean, I really think it's kind of... Um, there's not really a polite word that I can come up with to describe quiet We don't have to quitting. be polite. Well, then we won't be polite. I think it's asinine. Um, look, look, the idea 
that you should punch the clock, that you should do the bare minimum. This, it, it's not even American. Uh, you know, I mean, we, we are a country that became great because of our work ethic, because we did give it our all. And the idea of just FaceTime showing up, doing the minimum. I mean, for heaven's sake, put yourself in the position of being a parent. I have four kids. Would I ever raise my children to say, you know what? You need to aspire to be mediocre. You need, you need to do the bare minimum. No, you want your children to succeed. You want your children to do better than you've done. And you try and instill those virtues in them, not to grow up and be a quiet quitter. So, you know, I just, it, it's a reflection, I think, of the empowerment of the worker. And don't get me wrong. I think that private equity has had a terrible influence, as has corporate CEO pay, just running off the rails, greed, you know, having so much money filter through to the C-suites and, and, and paying one-time dividends to these private equity kingpins, as I call them. I think that there is imbalance between what the executives make compared to what their workers make. And that does need to be resolved. But you don't need to swing the pendulum all the way to the opposite side and suggest that mediocrity is is acceptable. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I believe in hard work as well. Um, going back to the economy, um, your comments at the top, you know, that we we're going to see maybe this will be longer, or more drawn out. Can the Fed here in the U.S. engineer a soft landing or are we past that point? You know, it's, it's interesting to see that, that the idea of a soft landing has made a roaring comeback uh, just in the past few weeks. And you're hearing more and more about it. Uh, I, I think it's fanciful thinking. I really do. Because it, when, when you hear uh, you know, on, on the same day that the NASDAQ was up seven and a half percent, when you hear about companies like Amazon, the nation's second largest employer, coming out and saying, you know, we're going to be looking at a major restructuring. You know, that's code word for huge layoffs. And what we saw, the irony of all of this is that April 28th, I have that date in my mind for whatever reason, but April 28th was the day that Amazon originally made their, uh, 2022 originally made their announcement that they were going to be reducing their payroll by 100,000 workers. Now, this was not like Armageddon moment because since the pandemic, they increased their headcount by 800,000. That being said, the minute Amazon made that initial announcement in April, we started seeing other corporations follow suit. That's really when the layoff announcements picked up. Now that we're seeing Amazon come back and say, we're looking at a major restructuring. Now I think you will see other companies again, follow suit because we do live in a competitive world. Many companies overhired during the pandemic. There was this grab for labor. And I think we're going to see that begin to reverse, which is going to put an idea of a soft landing, I think, out to pasture. Yeah, out, out to pasture. What is kind of your take or like your outlook on the Fed and, you know, it's um, rate hikes? Like, what are you looking for there? So I think... Um, I, I think so few of us are are um, accustomed to the type of Federal Reserve that we're experiencing now. We're used to a malleable Federal Reserve. We're used to a Federal Reserve that 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 did what investors deemed they needed. 
you know, catch my back, make sure I don't lose any money. There is, there's only a reward for taking risk. I, I think that Jay Powell is exemplifying that he is of a different, of a different cut. And this is really difficult for us to get our heads around because when push came to shove in 2018, he did bend to the market's will. He did pivot. And that's why I think that the, the the conventional wisdom is that we're going to see him pivot again. So far, that's not been the case. He really has behaved differently than the Jay Powell of 2018 when he was first in office. And he does seem determined to get the Fed funds rate, the overnight uh, rate up to four and a half, five percent. And if we listen to him, he plans on keeping it there. Mm-hmm. Again, we don't have a playbook. We don't know how to behave in such an environment because for the last 40 some odd years, it hasn't been it hasn't been the way that the Federal Reserve has operated. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard you say this before, and I want to hear you explain it. Um, and, I, I, and I don't have an exact quote, but I think I've seen tweets at least um, about the Fed put and Jay Powell wanting to kill the Fed put. Mm hmm. And, and that really is, when, when you consider the magnificent pace at which we're seeing home prices reverse and come back down, or if you're talking about used car prices, these were some of the biggest drivers of inflation on the way up. This is a lawyer by training. He's a pragmatic person. He's not a PhD in economics. He can read the headlines as well as any of us. He's a very hardworking person. Maybe he knows what we know, that there will be a reversal in inflation. And if that's the case, then why is he being as adamant as he is about continuing on this tightening pace and keeping monetary policy tighter than it would be otherwise, unless he had a different goal in mind? And that's kind of by process of elimination where I come to this theory that, you know what, maybe Jay Powell's trying to kill the Fed put. Maybe he's trying to break the back of speculation once and for all so that it's the Fed, truly an independent, apolitical entity that is making monetary policy and not speculators making monetary policy for the Fed. Yeah. Um, you, you talk to a lot of folks um, and you do a lot of interviews, too. When you bring up this idea, because I'm, I'm intrigued by it. Um, what kind of reaction do you get from other, you know, market participants or, you know, economists or anyone that you have these discussions with about this idea of why he might be acting the way he is? So um, the general reaction is one of, oh, let me think of a word here, pity. Uh, Gee, Danielle is you know, delusional because he's eventually going to have to to break. And there is something to be said for that. There is a lot of logic there, you know. You're not allowed to be a central banker if you let systemic risk run wild. It's just a big no-no. So I'm I'm sympathetic to that mind frame. But what if I'm only half right? And what if he keeps monetary policy tighter than anything we've seen up to a limit? That's still going to have ramifications for uh, for the investing world and for the economy. What if he just puts half the zombie corporations into their graves? That's still going to make it's still going to leave a lasting mark. So I I understand that 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 we have debt to GDP in the United States that's much higher than what it was when 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 Paul Volcker was in office. And I, I can do the math. I can see the data. That being said, 
he does appear to be determined and he has brought into line a lot of traditionally dovish Fed officials to echo what he's saying about the need to keep interest rates higher for longer than what we're accustomed to, which is a lower for longer existence. Mm -hmm. Do you think this, um, does, does this have anything to do with like his, his legacy or wanting to preserve his legacy or put forth a different kind of legacy? Well, uh, so we all, you know, we, he does talk often about not wanting to be remembered as the next Arthur Barnes. He does talk often. Uh, and in fact, in his eight minute and 28 second uh, Jackson Hole speech, the shortest on record by far, you know, he invoked the name Paul Volcker several times. And so you do see uh, Jay Powell is wanting to establish a, a, a better legacy. That being said, I don't consider him to be power hungry. So, uh, you know, and I, I'm hoping that this is the case. I get a lot of criticism because I'm the one who wrote why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. And I did write that. And I think that the way that the Fed was operating was bad for America. So I, I shouldn't be criticized for hoping that Jay Powell succeeds if it's going to make for a less uh, an, an economy that's less prone to boom bus cycles in the end. So if he succeeds, if he establishes a legacy of being more akin to a Paul Volcker, we all win. Yeah. Um, you mentioned um, the, your book um, and, and some of the reasons you, you wrote it. Um, do you, have you seen the Fed change since you were there? What are some of the things that that folks should be aware of. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things in the book, but they, if you would want to highlight some of the things that like everyday folks listening or watching who might not follow the Fed as closely should be aware of like how it, how it works. So not enough has changed. Um, in fact, right now we're at a point in history where we finally have the potential to change the way that the Fed has operated as I outlined in the last chapter of my book. You know, if he succeeds in getting the Fed funds rate up to 5%, then you know what? He can still cut interest rates to address a recession, but not go to the zero bound. Maybe it's time to put quantitative easing to bed and not have that be part of the uh, an item in the toolbox. Maybe, maybe it's time to finally admit the failures of unconventional monetary policy. These are the things that I advocated for. I, adv I, I advocate it for non-politicized leaders of the Fed. If Jay Powell succeeds, he certainly will not have been motivated by anything political. And that's what I've advocated for. And that's why I've become his biggest cheerleader, hoping he succeeds. That's, so we're like that's another part that we are at a critical juncture because there is an opportunity for success here on Powell's part. There is. There really is. And... I find myself being one woman alone on an island because everybody's rooting for him to fail because that means that they get the they get the tooth fairy to come back and deliver happy returns to the stock market. And that's all anybody seems to want is when is he going when when is Powell going to pivot for heaven's sake? Right. But in that in that scenario wouldn't it be better for Main Street though because I mean, you kind of highlight this in the book, too. Like, the Fed policies really have not benefited, like, everyday Americans. It, has, it hasn't benefited the real economy. So there's a chance for it has that. Not. 
No, it has not. And the pandemic compounded that effect by really uh, having fiscal policy also be the enemy of the small business owner, the entrepreneur. You know, Fed policy feeds passive investing. It feeds the passive investing theme uh, trend because you don't have to carefully allocate your resources. You simply have to be long the NASDAQ and sit there with your money. What does that feed? It feeds the monopolization of America, the largest companies, the companies such as Google and Microsoft, that if there is a competitor in their world, they simply absorb them. They acquire them, which quashes as a factor of time the entrepreneurial spirit that made this country so great. So, yes, if the Fed succeeds, Main Street will be the main winner. Mm -hmm. How how would the Fed be able to succeed? Like, what is, like, let's reiterate, like, what, what would be the path for success in, in your opinion? Well, I, I think the trick here is for the Fed to not break anything big. And that's the delicate balancing act, right? It's, it's not allowing systemic risk to come unglued, which we saw in the aftermath of, of Lehman going down. And if, if that can, that can be the ultimate outcome that, that they can slowly, methodically take the rot out of the system without breaking anything big that forces them to pull back, then that, I think, will be a measure of ultimate success. Mm -hmm. Do you think the rate hikes are the right approach at this time? Like what from like a policy perspective, like what seems to be like the right threshold to get to or and. Well, it's not, and, and, and I, I say this, uh, you know, it, it, it is the level in the sense that you want to get rates high enough to, that you don't have to go back to the zero bound. So there is something numeric there. There's something, something to be said for getting to 5%. Um, and, and I think that that's probably one of the goals. At least I hope that's the case. I mean, I'm, I'm in public. I'm on YouTube. Jay Powell, God love you. I hope you're watching. Um, but, but I think that, that that is why he's trying to get to a certain level. It's so that he doesn't have to do as he did in 2019, only get to two and a half percent such that when something really bad happened, he had to go back to the zero bound because there simply wasn't enough to cut. So I think that that is one of the goals. And I really believe that he wants quantitative tightening to continue to proceed in the background. I think that's one of the reasons he hasn't spoken about quantitative tightening very often in, in the public, because I do think that he wants to shrink the Fed's balance sheet and, you know, pray God, not bring it back. Why do you think, wait, why do you think he hasn't talked about it or it's happening in the background? Why not? I, I think he wants for the market to understand that it's not up for negotiation. Gotcha. I think he just wants for it to continue. And, you know, we're talking about $95 billion a month here in the United States. We forget that there's the rest of the world where we're seeing central bankers also pull back. Cumulatively, we're talking about $750 billion a month mm -hmm. that's being pulled out of the global financial system. That's a lot of liquidity depletion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. I want to bring this up with you as well. Um, and, and I kind of mentioned at the top, um, you spent almost a decade at the Dallas Fed and you also worked on Wall Street. You were a journalist as well. Dallas Morning News. You had some amazing columns. Um, some thought I was retired. <laughs> yeah, some some criticizing uh, Fed's low interest rates at the time. You had cautionary warnings about a bubbly housing market. You had two 
you co-authored two famous papers at the Fed uh, warning about the housing the, the housing market at the time. You can correct me if I'm wrong. I think that was, was about the housing um, impending housing crisis. I think it was 2007. So you mentioned it, housing at the top. It's required reading in many business programs, my original subprime paper. I love that. That's awesome. Um, I'll have to link it in the show notes. Um, but I want to talk about housing with you because you did mention it at the beginning when we were talking about the economy. What are your views um, as it relates to housing here in the U.S.? So I think um, I, I think that, uh, that that there's something to be said for this not being the same kind of a housing bubble, right? I'm sitting in Austin, Texas right now to take but one example. Uh, you know, investors infiltrated this market. Uh, where I live in Dallas in the year 2021, 52%, no, 43% of all homes purchased, all home transactions in Dallas County in 2021 were investors. Across the way, west in Tarrant County, where Fort Worth is, 52% of all transactions we're investors. So we don't have, you know, we're, it, this is not going to be the big short 2.0 where you've got a stripper with five homes and five mortgages. Not the same exact dynamic, but you definitely have had leveraged investors pile into this housing market and, and increase prices to a greater extent than what you saw in 2006, 2007. So we are indeed seeing the backside of that. As you see, Companies like Redfin push through massive layoffs and shut their eye-buying businesses down. So it's there will be air that comes out of this housing bubble, and hopefully we come through on the other side of it uh, with, with an opportunity to have a next generation of home buyers get in at much more reasonable levels than what they've been these last few years. Yeah. As someone who I, I don't have a, a home, but I, I want to buy one, but not right now. Maybe there would be an opportunity. Yeah. Um, I, I also, just because of your expertise in the space, there, because since the financial crisis, there's been a lot of private equity that's entered the space and snapped up all these homes and they're renting them. How, how has that exacerbated the situation? It's, it's fuel to the fire. It really is. And, um, and shame on so many cities for allowing this to happen. Now you're seeing... Uh, I just mentioned I'm in Austin, Texas, Round Rock, Texas, close to where I am. You know what? They told a, a home developer that they were not welcome to build a single family rental new build development because they know that they want to build communities and you build communities one homeowner at a time who's going to take pride in owning a home, not being an effective indentured servant who can never save up the money for a down payment on a home because they're paying above market rents to some private equity firm out of New York. So I, it, it's, it's definitely exacerbated this housing uh, cycle. It's, it's added an element of, of speculation because so, so many of them are ca all cash buyers. Don't get me wrong, they're levered. It is borrowed money, but they're coming in as all cash buyers. And that I think created a lot of these massive bidding wars that you saw where people felt compelled to pay more than they could afford for a house uh, because they felt like in a moment of desperation, they had to do it. So private equity has definitely been a big influence as has, you know, this, this trend of, you know, you're able to get a mortgage if you're going to buy a home for rental income, Airbnb, VRB, VRBO. That also, I think, has been a major influence. And I think we're going to see an unwinding of that because so many of these owners uh, 
have have these mortgages predicated on the VRBO rates staying at post-pandemic levels when Americans are now able to choose. You know what? It's a lot cheaper for me to go stay in a hotel. I'm not going to pay up. So you will see housing supply come out of this particular, I call them the Airbnb jocks. You will see housing supply come from that as well. And that's good. That's what that, that is what you want to see. Yeah. Do you think, um, I'm just thinking of like the last couple of years with housing, was this um, a result of Fed policies? Is that kind of how we got here? What do you think? So there was this organic wave of people who moved out of city centers uh, when the pandemic first hit. That was extremely fundamental in nature. But at the same time, you have the Fed hoovering up a third of all mortgage-backed securities. And that only fed the speculation. Uh, And now what do we have? We have mortgage rates that are much, much higher and the Fed actually coming in and destroying what, what they created. And there's an irony there, right? Uh, but no, the Fed was a major influence on uh, on the housing bubble running amok. Yeah. Um, going back to just the, the broader economy here, um, I know you look at a lot of data and a lot of indicators. As you kind of piece together your picture, like what are the things that you're paying most attention to? So, you know, what I follow the most closely is where the risk lives. And I think the risk lives in our credit market. And so so I track as closely as I can rates volatility, where the Fed's policies could potentially unleash a large area of risk through the prism of, of the credit markets. And that's because corporations have had the opportunity that American households had in the last cycle to over lever themselves. And that does not tend to end well. So, you know, the only thing we've seen thus far in terms of credit and the bankruptcies that we've seen is a pure result of interest rate risk and the inability to refinance. We have not seen credit worthiness necessarily peek out its head, but it's coming. And you can see that in in the data. So you think that some of these companies that were probably probably zombie companies to begin with, got kind of propped up that we might see that kind of start to wash through? That's exactly right. So you've seen companies that had the high yield bond market not been open that would have gone out of business, creating the opportunity and creating the extra bandwidth for good operators to come in and replace them. And and that's how you organically grow an economy, not by keeping the zombies alive by way of by virtue, unvirtue of Fed policy. Got it. So like you don't folks wouldn't want to be like near high yield, I take it. Uh, you know, one of my good friends, Jeffrey Sherman uh, of, of Double Line, he, he was out just a few days ago saying he would not touch high yield here. And, you know, and he's right. And there's also this gigantic $3.5 trillion segment of the investment grade bond market yeah. that is rated triple B, one rung right north of junk, much of which is probably actually junk and should be should not have an inflated credit rating. We've read this book before. It's just in the last iteration you know, that it ended with, with credit rating agencies downgrading subprime as opposed to what I think we will see in coming months and years. And that's uh, the credit ratings of corporations coming down. 
Got it. Yeah, Sherman's great, by the way. I haven't had him on the show um, yet, but maybe one day we'll get him on. Um, yeah, so I, you look at the credit markets. What is there anything else that you like to pay attention to? Oh, I know you pay attention to a lot of things, but what else do you like to, um, what else is kind of like catching your attention these days? So I'm also watching very closely the, the slow grinding increase in continuing jobless claims. And why not initial? Well, continuing jobless claims are a reflection of people who are, who are, they're, they're collecting unemployment. So they're people who are out of the workforce and not getting back in the workforce. That's why initial claims sometimes paint the wrong picture. So we've seen about a 14, 15% increase from the mid-May lows in continuing jobless claims, uh, not recovering. And so that is something else that I'm watching because it's it it mirrors it mirror images what we were seeing in 2019 as the economy was slowly slipping into recession that was saved by the pandemic if you will and the massive bailout from the fiscal side and the monetary side that resulted from that got it like yeah you talk, you're talking about like mirroring what we were seeing in 2019 and um the pandemic essentially saved us from being in recession so i guess my following question is because of that like almost postponing it in a way. I don't know if that's the right word. Um, you can correct me. Does that set us up for like an even worse recession? In, in theory, yes, because the, the way that we were able to get resolution was by piling a couple trillion dollars more debt on companies' balance sheets and blowing up the national debt. And you know, increasing credit card spending to absolute records as of 2022's third quarter by buying more car than we could afford to drive. So you don't resolve an over-indebtedness problem, as I've always said, by putting more debt onto the problem. So you do end up creating a weaker, more fragile backdrop by over-leveraging something that was already hyper-leveraged. Yeah. Um, what do you think? Um what something like just we what do you think is the biggest risk out there that we have not discussed or brought up so you know i, I think uh i think that during the financial crisis we never really did see uh you know kind of what it would have looked like to have had those derivatives markets come undone right because the fed let lehman brothers go but it came roaring back in that same day, the same Sunday that Lehman Brothers was deemed to be RIP, we rescued AIG because we didn't want to actually see what it looked like on the other side of that cliff had derivatives actually been unwound and what that contagion might have looked like. So, you know, we, we did have systemic risk come uh, after Lehman Brothers. You did have a money market fund break the buck that did ignite systemic risk. All of these things happen, but Lord, we never tested the derivatives market. So that risk continues to lurk out there and hopefully we don't see what that other side looks like. I'm not a cheerleader for there being some kind of a systemic risk event. And I do hope again, that the Fed succeeds in managing this unwind in in seeing risk pulled out of the system but one company at a time not something that makes the global financial system implode that's not what we want <laughs> mm -hmm. um i guess to kind of round this out 
because um, they're, they're almost like a few themes here. So I'm, a, I'm of the millennial generation. There's also the Gen Z generation. So we talked about this notion of the quiet. I'm against quiet quitting, but it's happening. Um, a lot of people will probably bought their first homes, cars when they moved during the pandemics. So they're probably going to, you know, they're dealing with some of the pain of of higher rates. Also, maybe they could be dealing with white collar layoffs. Um, I mean, what do you think of the state of the U.S. for like the millennial or Gen Z generations um, and hopefully the Fed getting back to a place where they can succeed and get back to being more independent? Like what is kind of your outlook um, for what the younger generations might have to inherit or deal with? Well, I think they're going to have to deal with reality and and with with a different lifestyle with having responsibilities with having to pick up the baton and and you know and by the way it's needed we don't need a bunch of 80 year old people running this country we need leaders in your generation to rise and we need for there to be a reset of what your generation and gen z considers to be the right way to have a day job. So, you know, it's it's not sour grapes. I don't wish ill of anybody in any generation, but there is something to be said for the fruits of accomplishment and, and having a mental reset about how we approach the idea of work. And you know what? I mean, I've got an 18, 16, 14 and 14 year old that's the kind of world that I want for them to come up in so that they're following generations that have rediscovered the beauty of a work ethic that you have. And I, I certainly don't want to stereotype at all because so many in your generation do well and do have great work ethics. I think it just needs to be more universally embraced by these younger generations. I like that, like um, a reset. And maybe it's it's it can kind of play itself out across, uh, you know, different areas, including maybe even the Fed itself. Um, hopefully. Oh, yeah. yes, please. <laughs> yeah. Um, Danielle, really appreciate you. Do, you. do you have any parting thoughts for the folks who are watching or listening? Anything that you want to bring up that we didn't in this conversation? Um, no, I mean, we, we've covered a lot of ground, uh, but you've asked me about some things that, that most people don't. And, um, and I, I hate to be seen or, or cast as a doom and gloomer because I'm not, I, you know, I do have young children. And so if your viewers are in your demographic, then I want for the parting thought to be, think of how much better this world will be uh, if you, the millennial generation, rise and become our leaders. Think of the world that your children will grow up in to finally put to rest these octogenarians running this country. So rise to the challenge and then enjoy it. That's what I would have to say. I really like that. Um, we also just want to hear where um, folks can find you read more of your work, pick up your book, follow sure. you on social media. Will you let them know? We, you know, we publish the Daily Feather every trading day of the week. 
It's $60 a month, which is stupid and expensive. So please come subscribe. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I write better than I talk. So I'll, I'll toot my horn there, but come to Quill, Q-U-I-L-L, -L, come to quillintelligence.com uh, and take me out for a test drive. Subscribe uh, to my daily. If you run money for a living, then become a QI Pro client. And that's a whole different level of intelligence that you will have access to. And of course, if you don't follow me on Twitter already, uh, I hope the platform is there for years to come because that's where i've that's where i've put all of my energy into building my social uh, media presence i'm not on TikTok or i'm not active on instagram all these things follow me on youtube as well at dmartino booth is how to find me love it well you are a great follow on twitter i can definitely attest to that i think a quarter of a million followers now which is just Amazing. Danielle, I really appreciate you taking the time just to be, you know, here and share your ideas and your insights. They're so valuable. Danielle DiMartino Booth, CEO and Chief Strategist of Quill Intelligence. I thank you so, so much uh, for joining the show today. You are quite welcome. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you.